This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Bank. We here at the Word of the Week engage in some pretty expensive hobbies. Well, to be honest, we don't just engage in those hobbies. We're fanatically dedicated to those said hobbies. I mean, between the two of us, we spend many hours every week recording this particular podcast, which we mostly started just for funsies or lulls or whatever you kids call it these days. Sure, there's a longer story to how and why this got started, but it doesn't really matter right now. And that's not to mention the hours we spend on other gaming-related projects. And then there's the hours we spend on games themselves. When we're not creating worlds and adventures for our players and various role-playing game groups to explore and experience, we're sitting in front of a high-definition screen using a plastic device to navigate clouds of ones and zeros through all sorts of trials and tribulations, usually so we can defeat other clouds of ones and zeros, and ultimately to save still other clouds of ones and zeros from terrible danger. And all of that stuff costs money. We pour hundreds of dollars into books and gaming supplies for our tabletop fanaticism, and then throw away 30 to 60 bucks a pop on the latest video game that we absolutely have to play month after month after month. Of course, that's not to say the money is really wasted. We spend the money because we get a great deal of fun out of gaming. In fact, we generally get, or hope to get, more value out of the game than we do out of the money we had. We might have worked for six hours to earn the cash to buy Sekiro, but we'll get ten times that many hours out of playing it. Or more. Probably more. It is from the makers of Dark Souls, after all, but it'll be a lot less stressful and a lot more fun than working. Well, maybe not. It is from the makers of Dark Souls, after all. But then we come back to that fanatical devotion thing. Sekiro is one of those things we have to do. But we digress. Our point is, well, we've been talking about money, about treasure for the last couple of weeks. And how money and treasure are represented in our favorite games versus how it actually is, or was, in real life, historically speaking. And one thing we haven't talked about yet is a thing that is actually a bit more common in video games than in tabletop role-playing games, especially in games where your treasure is at risk. Take, for example, many Japanese-style role-playing games. Just to grab one example, Dragon Quest III, also known as Dragon Warrior III in America. In addition to the usual array of weapons, armor, and item shops that such games usually featured, Dragon Warrior 3, published by Enix in 1988 in Japan and 1992 in North America, Dragon Warrior 3 introduced a new type of business. A bank. See, in Dragon Warrior, when you died, the king would revive you. Or the local church would. But by way of a fee, they'd take half the money you had in your pocket. Or all of it, it depended on the game. But if you stored your money safely in the bank, it'd still be there upon your return to the mortal coil. And this became a recurring feature, not just of the Dragon Quest games, but of many role-playing games and adventure games in general. Any game which put your treasure at risk generally gave you the opportunity to bank that cash safely away in some hidden reserve to protect it. 
In Legend of Zelda, Majora's Mask, you could even protect your money from ceasing to exist as a result of time being rewound, so you'd have money you technically never collected. At least from an objective viewpoint of time. And in Team Cherry's recent indie darling Hollow Knight, there's a banker bug. To be clear, everyone is bugs in the town who will keep your money safe even if you die. Until, spoiler alert, she runs off to spend it all at the local pleasure house. In the ruins of a cursed ancient city filled with ghosts and monsters. For, you know, reasons. Point is, when it comes to video game fantasy, banks are a pretty ubiquitous thing. And in many games, they are often there to protect your funds from danger while you go on an important quest or pilgrimage. Moreover, they are there to protect your money even through the preservation of your immortal soul, even if your mortal body gets destroyed. But you might be surprised to discover that, well, that's kind of where banks came from. Modern banks, anyway. Because those modern banks are a resurrection reincarnation of a very ancient service that was killed off to protect people's immortal souls. And that banking has been inextricably tied to religion in various ways for 4,000 years. Especially when it comes to getting more out of something than you put into it. These days, a bank is a financial institution, a business that performs two primary functions. First, it accepts and safeguards deposits. Second, it creates credit. Deposit comes from the Latin word depanere, which means to put away. And it simply means to put something aside for safekeeping, and that's what banks do. You give them your money, and they hold on to it until you need it. And then they give it back. Credit comes from the Latin word credere, which means to entrust or believe, and it means, in this case, lending someone money, believing they will give it back. Now, if you're an accounting student or professional, as some of us here at the Word of the Week were and still sort of are, you learned in school the popular myth that credit and debit came from the Latin words for left and right, because they are entries that go on the left and the right side of the ledger. That's a fun joke, but it's also a lie. Credit comes from credere, and debit comes from debere, meaning to keep back or keep away, which also referred to something that was owed. Because when you owe someone something, they don't have it. Sorry to burst your bubble. But we digress. Point is, banks safeguard money and lend money. That's the basic definition. Now, we don't want to become an accounting and economics podcast. But one thing we also have to mention is that banks help many countries create money. And we don't mean in the physical sense of minting coins or printing bills they actually increase the amount of money that exists to go around without printing a bill or minting a dime. And we have to bring that up because we're going to tie back into that once we talk about ancient knightly orders and massive religious and military conquests. Seriously, it's all connected. But those are modern banks, right? What about ancient banks? Were there even ancient banks at all? Is it appropriate for there to be banks in the world of Alephgard and Hyrule? Should swords and sorcery fantasy banks be a thing? Well, we already gave it away in the introduction. Yes. Actually, very yes. Let's talk about the first Babylonian dynasty, briefly anyway. 
These days, we know Babylon was a real place, but until the 19th century, it was actually thought to be mythical, at least partly mythical. Babylon was famous in the ancient world for being rich, prosperous, and relatively advanced compared to its neighbors around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in what we now call Iraq and the Greeks called Mesopotamia, which means in the middle of the rivers. Between those two rivers was a very fertile valley which was just perfect for agriculture, and various tribes called it home. Collectively, the people were known as the Shinar, or the Sumerians. Now the story gets a little confusing here because there was this king who united the various tribes in the region under his rule and turned it into a kingdom. But there's some argument as to whether that was Nimrod, who was a biblical descendant of Noah, or whether that was Sargon, who founded the city of Akkad. And some scholars think that Sargon and Nimrod were the same person. Oh, by the way, Nimrod was described in the Bible as a great and mighty hunter, and for a long time it was used as a compliment. It was attested in this form in 1712 to compliment a good hunter, and then, suddenly, in the early 1980s, it became teenage slang for a clumsy person, or a stupid person, or a geek. And no one is sure how that happened, but there are some theories. One of the best, even though it's not very strong, is that Nimrod might have been used in fraternal hunters' organizations as ironic trash talk. That is to say, if a hunter in your party screwed up, you'd sarcastically call them a real Nimrod. In much the same way you call someone Sherlock Holmes after they state the blindingly obvious. This may also have been the sense in which Bugs Bunny frequently called Elmer Fudd a Nimrod. But we digress. Babylon became a kingdom, a big and powerful kingdom, and its power and wealth grew by leaps and bounds around 2000 BCE when Hammurabi came to power, and he ruled from the city of Babylon, whose name means Gate of the Gods. Now, one of the revolutionary things Hammurabi did was to codify the laws. That is, he took the rules he was going to enforce as king, and he wrote them down, so everyone would know what they were was a pretty big deal. It meant he wasn't just ruling by whim. It was a pretty progressive thing to do, and it helped Babylon prosper and become a center of business and trade. And that meant they needed an easy way to keep track of and transfer wealth, as we discussed in previous episodes. And what was flowing through the rivers of Babylon? The same stuff the Egyptians used. Gold. So they also got in on the whole pressing gold into chunks and using it as money thing. But they also discovered currency, gold, had a problem. It was easy to steal. Before money came along, picking someone's pocket entailed stealing an entire herd of cattle or several chickens or a bunch of clay pots or whatever trade good they were bartering with on market day. But with people compressing their wealth into a small portable form, well, trade got easier but so did theft. And so people started to look around for a safe place to store their money when they weren't using it. And they noticed something. There were already these big, imposing buildings in most cities that were busy and occupied pretty much around the clock. And more importantly, no one would dare try to steal anything from those buildings because super powerful magical entities would kill you you did. Yep, we're talking about temples. Temples devoted to the gods became the first storehouses for money, 
for precisely the reasons we outlined. They were secure buildings, they were always occupied, and they were protected by the gods themselves. And once the temples had started to stockpile wealth, well, they became able to perform other services. For example, if you needed to borrow some money for some reason, you knew the temple had a lot of money just sitting around. So the priests also started making loans. In the 18th century BCE, Babylonian temples were performing the two basic services that modern banks still perform today. And that's where this story ends. Except for the constantly changing relationship between finance and religion and a particular issue tied up in lending money, the charging of interest. So the Babylonian temples were the first banks, and through trade the Greeks adopted the same practice. Greek temples were also banks, and because they engaged in so much trade with so many other civilizations, their bank temples got more sophisticated. They started providing other services. And most of those services are also things you'd expect to get at the counter of your local Chase Bank or Capital One. They would exchange currency, and they would even test money to make sure it wasn't counterfeit. And then the Romans came along and adopted the same basic banking concepts and added even more to it, thanks to their love of administration and bureaucracy, and keeping very good records. For example, if you owed a debt to the government, or anyone else really, you could deposit the money at your local temple bank, and they'd pass it along. You could discharge your debts, even government debts, at a bank. And they also employed people to witness and attest to the veracity of payments, agreements, and so on. They invented the notary. And because they could issue official documents that attested to transactions, you could deposit your money in one city and get an official piece of paper that said you did it. And then you could go to another city and use that piece of paper to withdraw your money from that city's temple. And then civilization collapsed. Rome fell, the Dark Ages came, global and even regional trade and the use of currency all dried up. And so the bankers went out of business. But that's not all. Something else came along that also helped destroy banking. Christianity. Now, to be fair, we have to admit that what we're about to talk about is not just a result of Christianity. It's actually found in various forms in a number of world religions. And we're not really bashing Christianity or any religion here by saying they destroyed banking. It's just a statement of how the history of religion and the history of banking are so interconnected. See, Christianity had this rule that said usury was evil. Sort of. This is all very complex stuff now, and various theologians have been disentangling the ever-changing stance of various churches on usury and what it constitutes forever. Well, at least starting in the second century CE and continuing to today. So, don't take this is a condemnation. So what is usury? Usury is the practice of charging someone a fee when you lend them some money. Today we call that fee interest. Basically someone borrows 100 gold coins from you and agrees to pay you back 120 gold coins. Now the thing was, usury was a pretty common practice in all of those ancient temple banks and also amongst various business people. And there were a lot of logical arguments about it. For example, if you lend someone money, you don't have the money to use for what you might need it for. You're denying yourself the use of your money and therefore 
deserve a fee. And then there's also the chance that someone might not pay back the loan. And if they don't, you're out the money. But if you charge everyone a little fee, those little fees from everyone who does pay you back cover the occasional scammer who doesn't. But there were also some problems with usury. Plato hated the idea because in the end he felt it was creating money from nothing. It was like the money was breeding. But the bigger problem was that usury made it expensive to borrow money. If you had to pay back more than what you borrowed and you were desperate and needed to borrow money just to live, you couldn't afford to borrow. It negatively impacted people in need. And it was seen as gouging. If the person lends you 100 gold coins and gets back 100 gold coins, they haven't lost anything or given up anything. Why should they get a profit? Well, the morality of usury has been argued to death. We're not going to weigh in, though we are going to discuss modern interest and why it exists and how it benefits the economies of modern nations. We'll just stop and say, with its focus on the poor and downtrodden at its inception, the Christian faith was very much against usury. And so with the fall of Rome, banking was dead and buried in Europe, and the prohibition on usury meant that as long as the Christian church, and the Catholic church specifically, had power in Europe, it wasn't coming back. And that's where the story ends. Except not everyone agreed with that view, and except for the fact that people needed the services that banks provided. By the 12th century CE, trade had recovered, commerce and currency were becoming more widespread, and war was becoming very expensive. Expensive enough that various rulers needed ways to borrow money, but no one wanted to lend large sums of money to anyone. There was no incentive, no profit to be made. You were better off using your money for some useful purpose than lending it to someone else. Unless, of course, the Catholic ban on usury didn't affect you. Say if you were Jewish. Now to be clear, Hebrew scripture also takes a dim view of usury. But the view is more nuanced. It's okay to charge money for a loan, as long as the person isn't in need or poor and as long as the person isn't your kin. And because the Hebrew view is that all Jews are one community, that means they are all kin with each other. Jews can't charge other Jews interest, but they can charge anyone else. And so in the 12th and 13th century, Jewish banking started to rise in Europe. Meanwhile, though, there were other religious issues going on. See, in the mid 600s, this new religion had appeared around a prophet named Muhammad in the Middle East, and it was spreading quickly and violently, especially after Muhammad died and he was succeeded by Umar ibn al-Khattab, who was later succeeded by Uthman ibn Affan, because they began a military conquest of the Middle East, Africa, and parts of Europe on a scale that had not been seen since the fall of Rome. They plundered, ravaged, destroyed, and occupied huge numbers of cities, sieged Jerusalem, which was the center of both the Christian and the Jewish faith, and laid siege to Byzantium. And so, Europe retaliated by launching the Crusades to drive back the Muslim Caliphate and ultimately retake Jerusalem. While all of this was going on, and this was spread over many wars over many long years with various cities changing hands, religious pilgrims were still trying to visit the holy sites in Jerusalem especially after the siege of Jerusalem was lifted. Meanwhile, 
The kings in Europe were looking for loans to finance their wars, including the Crusades, and they were turning to foreign powers and other faiths. But the Catholic Church was actually very wealthy. They had plenty of money to lend. But as noted, there are good reasons why banks charge interest, like not putting your wealth at risk. And so they were unwilling to lend it. And gradually, the prohibition on usury was lifted so the churches could lend money to the kings to help finance their wars and the Crusades. But what if you're a pilgrim traveling the dangerous roads of the Near and Middle East? Well, there was this knightly order. In 1099 CE, Jerusalem was recaptured from Muslim control. But because Jerusalem was still surrounded by Muslim lands, and the Muslims were very hostile toward the Christians, it was dangerous to travel to Jerusalem. So in 1118, a French knight named Hugues de Payan created an order of knights with eight of his friends and family. It was called the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ in the Temple of Solomon, which was later shortened to the Knights Templar. And they provided an escort to religious pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem. They established a temple in the Holy City, their numbers grew, they gained a papal endorsement, and they built numerous other temples. And another service they provided was to protect a pilgrim's wealth. The pilgrim could deposit their money in a temple in Europe and then reclaim the same amount of money at a temple in Jerusalem. And thus they grew very wealthy. And once the Catholic Church loosened its views on usury, they also became prominent moneylenders. Eventually, though, the tide turned against the Christians in the Middle East. Jerusalem was retaken, Acre fell, the Knights Templar lost many of their temples, and they went into decline. And then in 1303, from their new headquarters in Paris, they denied King Philip IV of France alone because the king and the country were so massively in debt, they'd never be repaid. And so King Philip trumped up a bunch of charges against them, including heresy, homosexuality, devil worship, and bank fraud, had the lot of them arrested, tortured until they confessed, and then executed. The French king then pressured Pope Clement V to dissolve the group officially, and the modern Catholic Church has acknowledged that this was a grave miscarriage of justice. But banking survived. The wealthy noble houses of Italy took over from that point, especially the Lombards and various Florentine families. But with banking having been resurrected and essentially having always provided the same basic services as it does today, there's not much more to discuss. So that's where the story ends. Except, we do want to discuss briefly the modern concept of interest, because as a financial concept, it is very important to the growth and maintenance of a modern economy, and very far removed from the ancient idea of usury. Interest, charged on a loan, generally exists to compensate the lender for five different things. First, a small portion of modern interest is just a fee, an incentive, to convince people to lend money instead of doing something else with it that benefits them more. That's the part that compares to ancient usury. The other things are all there to offset various modern financial risks. For example, inflation risk is the risk that the value of the money will change while you're waiting for it to be repaid. Default risk is the risk you won't be repaid. Liquidity risk is the risk that by lending money, you won't have money available for some emergency or other problem that comes up. 
And maturity risk is the risk that all of those other risks might change while you're waiting for the money to be repaid. But again, we don't want to turn this into an economic or accounting podcast just because of our own personal fanatical devotion to the topic. It's just something we have a lot of interest in. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>